Yes, grateful to be with you all this morning, humbled to be able to bring God's word to you. And uh, so out of fear and reverence for God's word, I'd ask that you guys, if you're able to stand and open your Bibles to Romans 7, where we will be reading this morning in verse 1, starting in verse 1, going through verse 6. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit, and not in the old way of the written code. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are aware of our neediness uh, of you this morning. Lord, we are totally dependent on your Spirit to bring life and produce faith in us as we hear your word. Lord, as it, as it says in Ephesians 13, would you open our eyes and pour out the fullness of your Spirit this morning so that we might behold the wonders of your truth and uh, marvel at Christ and all that he is for us, Lord. We, we tremble at your word, Lord, and, and just ask that I would get out of the way and that you would speak and um, move among your people this morning, Lord. We, we are dependent on you. We ask for supernatural work to be done in our hearts, Lord, and we, we look to you for all of this. It's, it's only by your grace that we do that. And so open our eyes this morning. May you receive glory and praise for uh, you are worthy of it, Lord. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Right, you can be seated. So, as we've been uh, saying from the beginning of Romans, Paul has been laying out what is, in the words of reformer Martin Luther, purest gospel. He has been strategically and carefully laying out how sinful man can legitimately be made right with a holy God. The last couple of weeks have looked at the nature of just justification for the believer, specifically in chapters three through five. That is, the legal declaration that God makes over us, seeing us just as if we had never sinned and just as if we had always perfectly obeyed. This justification comes through our union with Christ as our sin is placed on him and his righteousness is imputed to us. However, our union with Christ does not merely result in a declaration over us but a transformation in us. This looks at the aspect of our sanctification. In chapters six through eight, Paul moves on from addressing how God deals with the power, or deals with the power, or deals with the sinner's guilt and condemnation, our justification, to how God deals with the power of sin and corruption in the believer's life, our sanctification. Paul deals with our enslavement to sin in chapter six and shows how through our union to Christ, we are set free from the power of sin and made alive to God so that we can obey. This is what God has been unpacking for us for the last couple of weeks. 
In chapter 7, where we will be today and for the next few weeks, Paul deals with the issue of how a justified believer is to relate with the law. Our text this morning comes in response to a claim that Paul made earlier in chapter 6, verse 14, that those who are justified in union to Christ are not under law, but under grace. To a Torah-keeping, God-fearing Jew, the initial reaction to this claim would be alarm. Um, the interaction that Paul had with the Jews in Jerusalem, as recorded in Acts 21, clearly illustrates the objections they would have to his gospel message. They arrested him, saying, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law and this place. For the old covenant people, the law was their guide and keeper. It is what made them distinct from the peoples around them and what led them in the way to life before God. As Psalm 19 reads, The law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. The testament of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The tension over being released from the law is heightened when you read Psalm 119, specifically verse 160, where it says, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. Or Isaiah 40, verse 8, where it says, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. So but before we scoff at the Jews' response to uh, Paul's gospel message, consider what is at stake here. Either the gospel is contradicting and replacing the word of God, which ultimately undermines God's faithfulness, or it is actually fulfilling it. But Paul sees no contradiction here. He is convinced, and he is laying out for us in Romans, that the gospel of justification by faith alone fulfills the word of God. How then does the justified believer relate to the law in accordance with God's word? Well, throughout the history of the church, Christians have erred in two extremes regarding how we are to relate to the law. On the one hand is legalism. This is the extreme that seeks to follow the law rigidly down to the T. The thought is that one's salvation and favor with God is dependent on their ability to keep that law. A legalist would feel that their careful obedience is what makes them right before God. On the alternate end is the thought that, well, if we are justified by grace alone, apart from works of the law, why not sin so that grace may abound? This line of thinking is what we call antinomianism. This view minimizes the severity of sin and more or less throws out the need for any obedience to the Mosaic law. It also condemns one who would strive for any sense of trying to live a holy life, as if trying to obey will take away from the grace of the cross. Both of these views prove potentially fatal if followed to their end. However, what Paul is carefully laying out here in Romans 7 is the only way that a justified believer can relate to the law and live. Because you have been justified before God through your union to Christ, you can now live in relation to the law in such a way that actually bears fruit for God. You need not remain condemned and defeated by your sin. For you, brothers and sisters who are united to Christ, my aim this morning is to encourage you that because of your union to Christ, fruitful and faithful obedience to God will spring forth in your life. But if you are not bonded to Christ this morning, you will have no chance to trust and find assurance in anything else, even in your high obedience to God's pure commands, will leave you dead in your sins and condemned by his holy law. This is because in the strength of your flesh, 
the law's demands will only ever produce death. And that's our first point this morning, is that binding to the law produces the fruit of death. Look in verse 5 with me. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Last week, Greg described the condition of what it means to be under the law. It means that one is relying on their own righteousness through obedience to the law in order to be saved. This depends on the individual's efforts alone. They are responsible for themselves. As it is written, the soul who sins shall die. This justification under the law is the only way apart from faith in Christ that scripture gives for being saved. The law really does lead one into what God would require of us, for it is a reflection of his own good and holy nature. As Paul says in Galatians 3.21, is the law therefore opposed to the promises of God? Absolutely not. For if a law had been given that could impart life, then righteousness would certainly have come by the law. However, the problem that Paul has been making up to this point in the letter and is explaining here in verse 5 of today's text is that while we are living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So due to our inherited sin and ongoing wickedness, no human being can be justified by, in God's sight by works of the law. Which is why he continues in Galatians 3.22 saying, but scripture has locked up everything under the control of sin, so that what was promised, being given through faith in Jesus Christ, might be given to those who believe. Because of our sinful flesh, seeking to justify oneself by works of the law will only produce death. Paul explains this in chapter 5 as being due to our connection to Adam. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. So through humanity's representative head, Adam, sin and death entered the world. So we are all by nature dead in sin. Paul expounds on this condition in the first three chapters of Romans. Everyone has sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and so received the wage for that sin death. This condition of bondage to sin was true even before the law was given, for in sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. However, when the law came, it revealed God's holy standard for righteousness. Initially, one may think, ah, oh, great. Well, now I at least know what God is expecting from me, so I will just do that and God will be happy with me. Well, this would be well and good. However, we all know from experience that the attempt to live out of this mindset will leave us beaten and discouraged after just a couple of moments. We are far weaker and in more stronger bondage to sin than we could have ever realized without the law. Take this example from our common human experience. So we all generally like to know what we're supposed to do, right? In our work or home life, it's really nice to have a clear list of objectives to help us be productive and confident in how we use our time. Growing up, I remember my dad was always a big list guy. He seemed like every morning that uh, he had to get up, make a list of objectives he could more or less live by for the day um, and keep organized for the day that way. I, on the other hand, hated making a list. Uh, one reason was because I'm not particularly organized, um, but the primary reason was because 
I knew I always set higher expectations for the day than I was ever really able to carry out. It was so frustrating for me to have all these high aspirations for the day only to find out that by the end, I couldn't even achieve half of what was on my simple list. The incomplete list just proved to show and remind me how much I couldn't get done. Maybe you can relate. So, if we can't even live up to our own limited expectations, how much more impossibly out of reach are the standards of the infinite and holy God? James chapter 2 says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. And our situation under the law gets worse as we consider what the commands of God do in the presence of our sinful nature. The reality is that we are not simply just missing out on reaching some high goal, such as the requirements of the law, that we are wanting to achieve, but that in our sinful nature, we do not actually want to submit to those requirements in the law at all. In fact, we are aroused to do the opposite. This is the point that Paul is making in verse 5, that while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Paul identifies that when our sinful flesh interacts with the law, it actually arouses our sinful passions. This is the condition of every unconverted heart that is still living in the flesh. The only effect that the law can have on the unregenerate heart is to arouse its sinful passions, and these passions are hard at work in every one of our members. When God gives a command to do this or don't do that, our sinful passions, the lust, greed, egotism, covetousness, envy, idolatry, anger, all these things are aroused in our head, heart, and hands, and feet, working tirelessly for any opportunity to run headlong in disobedience to God. Paul fleshes this idea out more in verse 7, and nine, seven through 9. Yet if, it had, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Here's an example of this played out. So let's say a young boy comes across a plate of tasty cookies on the counter. His mother had just baked. He then desires the tasty treat and eats one. If his mother asks him where he got the cookie, he will respond without shame that he got it off the counter. While this may be a little presumptuous of the boy, he was unashamed because he didn't act out against any rule or moral constraint against him. Okay, but let's change the scenario. Now his mom instructs him, do not eat any of these cookies. Surely from then on, all the little boy is going to think is about how he can get one of those cookies. Okay, he may go to great lengths, waiting for his mom to leave the room. Okay, or, and then grabbing a chair and climbing up on the counter, which may in fact be another rule he's disobeying, okay, in order that he may get the desirable cookie. Then, when caught in the act, he will quickly try to cover up what he's doing with a lie, perhaps blaming his little sister by saying that he was actually just trying to get one for her. Okay, so then we can now see that through this one rule, okay, the little boy's sinful passions were aroused to desire the cookie, above all else, steal it, deceive his mother, and blame his sister. As a teacher, um, I teach at Lincoln High School, so I, in, in uh, my classroom I can imagine another scenario like this happening. Um, let's say that I have a stack of tests with the answer key on my desk, 
And if I say nothing and leave the room for a moment, the students will continue, working, continue on working and pay no mind to what I have on my desk. However, if I say while well, I'm about to leave the room, hey, I have some sensitive information about a high stakes test you're going to have tomorrow on my desk, so don't go snooping around back there. As soon as I leave the room, you can imagine the sorts of sinful desires that will arise. The prospect of an easy 100% on the test by cheating will be stirred up by the student's egotism, laziness, greed, and with no, potentially no thought of heeding the command that I left them with. This truth extends out universally to every one of us, so that Paul can say of our experience in 1 Corinthians 15, 56, that the sting of death is sin and that the power of sin is the law. This is the effect of the law on our sinful flesh. The letter of the law makes demands but does not enable obedience. Further, it provokes the sinful flesh to act even worse. But I thought the law was supposed to be good. I mean, look at the way Psalm 119 exalts in the supreme worth of the commands of God. These things are true. The law is good. It was given by the Lord and is reflective of his goodness and character. As Paul asserts in verse 12, the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The problem is not with the law. The problem is with you and me. So if you step on a perfectly functioning scale and it reads 500 pounds, you are not going to blame the scale for telling you what you are. The problem there is that you are extremely overweight and need to change something in your life. The scale is just letting you know that. So it is with the law. As overwhelming as it would be to come back from being 300 pounds overweight, it could be done. This is not the case with sin under the law. We are in over our heads in sin. We cannot remedy or escape the demands of the law on us, so we must die. And so we have died. So that's our second point this morning, is that we have died to the law, severing that bond. So in, reading in verse 4, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. And so we have died. This dying is the premise which Paul is starting from for the main point he's making in this text. Look here in verse 1 from the text. Paul is addressing born-again believers whom he calls brothers. And he starts his argument with a claim that he assumes to be a basic, universally accepted truth, that the law is only binding on somebody as long as they are alive. The sense of the word law here is the Mosaic law, as it relates to and makes demands on sinful man. To help explain this statement, Paul uses an analogy from marriage to speak about how death severs our former relationship to the law. According to what the law says of marriage, a woman is bound to her husband as long as they both are alive. This law has power to make demands on them so that they are not free to leave and belong to another in marriage while the other is alive. If she were to leave, if the wife is, is to leave and marry another while her husband is alive, she would be counted by law as an adulteress. However, death is able to break this binding power of the law, so that, as verse 3 says, if the husband dies, the woman is free to legitimately go and marry another man. Even while she is carrying out the same act of taking another husband, the law makes no condemning claim on her. Now, Potential for confusion exists in this analogy if one seeks to over-apply all of its Im imagery. But the primary truth shown here is pretty basic. That is, that death will sever the law's binding claim on us in the same way that death severs the bond of marriage. So a brief side note, the main purpose of this text is looking at the relationship between the believer and the law. 
It's not to teach about the nature of divorce and remarriage. Also, this text is not saying that the only exemption from the law of marriage is death. Other qualifications for marriage dissolution can be found in the New Testament in relation to sexual immorality and desertion. But again, the point of this text today is that just as death severs the claims that marriage makes to bind a husband and wife together, so death will sever the former binding claims the law makes on us. Now, where does this death come from? Verse 4 begins, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Notice, it is not the law that is dying, it is us. And this dying is not something we experience on our own initiative. But we are put to death through the body of Christ. Note, the body of Christ here is not referring to the church, as Paul uses it in some cases, but rather to refer to Christ's death on the cross, which definitively broke the power of the law that in concert with sin produced death in us. Christ broke the power of the law by taking on flesh and accomplishing all that the law required during his 40-some years on earth. I think a helpful way of thinking about this is in terms of owing a debt. Let's say you live your life for years in pleasure and luxury so that you end up accumulating massive amounts of debt. You have dodged credit card bill after credit card bill, and now the day comes for your reckoning with the law. You must either pay the insurmountable debt or go to jail. You cannot pay the debt, so you're taken to jail, and there you remain the rest of your life because you were unable to pay, it off, pay off the debt. The good law holds you accountable for the careless spending and harm you have done in lavish living. Again, the law is not the problem, it is you. And this good law rightly keeps you bonded to the debt that you owe. You are bound to this debt until the day you die. But once you have died, the law can no longer keep you in bondage to the debt because the law has no power to make a claim on you after you have died. However, once you have died, your debt could be transferred over and assumed by another. This is what Christ has done so that the righteous requirement of the law is fulfilled and God's word does not return void. In Matthew 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. And that, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus summed the fulfillment of all the law and the prophets this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. This, as well as Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, reveals that righteousness under the law is not simply by following the letter of the law, as the Pharisees were rather impressive at. But what is truly required is perfection in both the letter and the spirit of the law, which is why Jesus says in Matthew 5:48 that you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Christ alone has fulfilled this righteous requirement of the law in his perfect life, death, and resurrection. This is the, the fulfillment of this in us is what Paul is explaining in chapter 6 of Romans regarding our union to Christ. If we have been united with him in his death like this, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing 
This is how we die to the law through the body of Christ. Our sinful flesh, which was formerly aroused by the law to disobey and resist God's commands, was crucified on the cross. This is why Paul continues saying, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. The power of sin over our lives, which was only ever provoked under the law, is now broken. Since the old self was crucified with Christ, when you hear God say, do this or don't do that, your first response does not have to be open defiance to his command. While it is true that this does not remove sin completely from the believer, it does kill the power of it over them. In this way, the justified believer may still have some resistance to the commands of God, but he or she is not enslaved to be disobedient. This struggle between the old sinful man and the new man in Christ is what Paul deals with more in the rest of chapter 7, and Ryan will get into that more next week. The struggle between our remaining sinful flesh and our regenerated heart is real, but the point in today's text is to say that the decisive blow has been made and the law no longer holds us captive to sin so that we must obey its desire. The members of our body are now free from their relentless work to bear fruit for death at every command of the Lord. As it says in verse 6, But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive. We are released from the law's binding power on us. Why? Because we have died to that which held us captive, our sinful flesh. This is the death talked about in verse 4, wherein Christ's death breaks the power of our bondage, of our bondage to the law, and notice how God accomplishes this reality in such a way that he preserves the goodness of the law. He does not put the law to death. He has put us to death with Christ, our new representative head, so that the old union or marriage we had to the law apart from Christ is now severed. Now we can legitimately be placed in a new union in which the justified believer is married to Christ. And now, being bound to him, our relationship to God's law is totally new as we will now bear fruit for life. And that's our third point, is that our new binding to Christ will bear fruit for God. You see this in verse 4 and 6 of the text. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. And jump to verse 6. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Now all of this talk about union to Christ is not simply a list of ideas to be believed in, but is a reality that will get stuff done in you. To be clear, we are first justified by faith alone through grace alone by means of our union to Christ alone. And then for those who are justified, this same union to Christ will cause them to bear ongoing fruit for God. This progressive work after justification is what we call sanctification and what Paul has in mind here in this text. Look again how he says it starting in verse 4. You also have died to the law through the body of Christ. And why did we die? So that you may belong to another. Belong to whom? To him who has been raised from the dead. That is Christ. And the final purpose for this, in order that we may bear fruit for God and at the end of verse 6, so that we may serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. This is the aim for which Paul is making the whole argument. We have been saved so that we can, for the first time, bear fruit that is pleasing to God. 
Now, how does this work? Our former unregenerate sinful flesh could not bear fruit except fruit for death, which is why Paul says later in chapter 8 that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. As we've already stated, this is why our sinful flesh must die. It cannot be allowed to live through some other hope apart from Christ. It can only die in Christ, and so as long as you are looking for salvation somewhere else, you will remain dead in your sin. It will be of no benefit to you to have a change in circumstance, mindset, or some other self-help strategy that gives us instruction on how to be better. Even the revelation of God's perfect law could not produce life in us. You must be bound to Christ and no other. Recall how Jesus teaches his disciples that this fruit is born in a person's life from John 15. He made clear that there is only one way possible for them to bear fruit. Using the imagery of a vine to symbolize binding to himself, he says, Abide in me, and I in you, as the, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you, unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me, and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from union with Christ, you can do nothing. However, if you are in Christ, God's grace has grafted you to the vine. Thus, the life-giving power of Christ is able to flow to you, the branch, and bear fruit. This means by which, the means by which we, the branches, are rooted to Christ, the nourishing vine, is faith. Faith in all who Christ is, what he has done, and all that he has said. God's grace binds us, bonds us to Christ through faith. This bonding is related to how a husband and wife are bound in marriage. Both the vine and marriage metaphor are meant to teach us of our relationship to Christ. After a man and woman are bound legally in marriage, the fruitfulness of their marriage is related to their abiding with one another. Without maintaining some consistent fellowship, or wait, sorry, they must communicate, spend time with, rely on, enjoy one another, and without maintaining this consistent fellowship, the fruitfulness of their marriage will dwindle. So it is with Christ. Once you are bound legally to Christ, the degree to which you are resting, spending time with, communicating, and relying on him, or in other words, abiding in him, you will bear fruit. To abide in Christ is to place all your eggs into his basket. Forsaking all other places of hope, security, or trust, you cast yourself wholly onto the person of Christ. This means you allow his word to fill your minds, direct your wills, and transform your affections. Now this abiding is not something that can happen by exertion, external pressure, or the will of the flesh. It first requires a supernatural act of God. It requires the transforming power of his Holy Spirit to renew our inner being. We must be changed to our very core. This change was prophesied about in the New Covenant in Jeremiah 31, where he says, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. The inner goings-on also is expanded on in Ezekiel 36. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. 
and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Notice this promise does not remove all function of the law completely. Rather, it guarantees us a new spirit that enables us to actually obey the commandments as we ought. When God has put our sinful flesh or our heart of stone to death with Christ, he then replaces it with a new spirit. And not just a spirit that is soft and responsive to God's word, but the spirit of God himself is what he places in you. And his spirit will cause you to walk in his statutes and obey his rules. Paul speaks similar of this in chapter 8, verse 11 of Romans, that this is the spirit of, that this is the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, and that this same spirit dwells in you. So that he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through, the spirit who, through his spirit who dwells in you. God has given us his very spirit to impart new life to our formerly dead flesh. In this newness of the spirit, the law is not just something you would agree to and comply with as an obligation. But you cannot help but have the spirit of God begin to permeate your body, changing your will to his so that it exudes out of you. This is how we, as verse 6 says, serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. John Piper helpfully summarizes how this work transforms the way we relate to the law. From the inside out by the Spirit, not from the outside in by the law. In other words, the decisive thing about the law will no longer be that it is a demand from the outside, but it will be a desire from the inside. In this way, we are changed. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us so that now we can serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. God's love fills our hearts so we can love his commandments and obey from the heart. The law is no longer burdensome and condemning but flows out of this love for God which he has produced in us. What encouragement. We all know that life is more than a list of just do's and don'ts. The fulfillment of God's law is more than just a list of do's and don'ts. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself is a command that is much deeper and more nuanced than a black and white list of rules. With such a command, how can anyone navigate the complexities of life as they ought to? This is the blessed overflow of the Holy Spirit that Christ has given you. The Holy Spirit of God always delights in doing good. He is not passive towards sin. He is not passive toward loving your neighbor. So as you walk through life's complex and diverse challenges, temptations, and decisions, his presence in you will actively move and stir you toward that end. To love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. This is the kind of fruit that will be increasingly evident in all who are justified and bound to Christ. May the reality of the newness of this spirit in your life fill you with peace and confidence as you seek to obey. Let's pray. Um, Heavenly Father, we are totally dependent on you to get this done in us, Lord. We pray that you would receive glory out of this time, out of this seeking you, Lord. We, we ask that you would just strengthen us to abide in Christ, strengthen our love for Christ, increase our, our faith and confidence so that we can be bold and faithful witnesses, Lord, and that we can um, faithfully and honorably obey and serve you, Lord, so that we might bear much fruit for your glory. I pray that you would just strengthen 
these believers and that they would be encouraged to walk in this newness of life, Lord, not bound by the condemning and heavy demands of the law, Lord, but walking in the newness of your spirit. What grace you have given us in Christ. May this grace flow and may the joy of that fill us richly so that we can praise you and worship you and walk in the confidence and peace that that brings, Lord. We love you and thank you. May you be praised. In Jesus' name, amen.